0: To understand our history, you have to understand the mass media era, the era of journalism. And Spanish language television, I'm saying, is, is um, essential to that. It is a core of that.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Fenneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon and I research the history of New York sports media. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org slash podcast. The history of American television often focuses on the big three networks—CBS, NBC, and ABC—all of which began regular broadcasting in the 1940s. But the influence of the medium cannot be understood without analyzing two other powerhouses—Univision, which started in 1961— and Telemundo, which came a quarter century later in 1986. Univision didn't benefit from the traditional ingredients of national television networks. It had no preceding system of radio stations, no financing or direction from New York, no studios in Hollywood. And yet today it is often the most viewed source of television in the United States, speaking in a single voice to Latinos from various countries of origin. Cubans, Mexicans, and Colombians have fended off homesickness thanks to the staples of Spanish-language programming—soccer, boxing, news, telenovelas, and variety programs of acrobats, dancers, and game show prizes. On this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, we examine the rise of Univision and Telemundo with Craig Allen, a journalism professor at Arizona State University. Well, Craig, welcome to the podcast to discuss your award-winning book. This is a runner-up for the AEJMC Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication History Division's Book Award. So we appreciate you taking the time to come to talk to us today about Univision Telemundo and the Rise of Spanish Language Television in the United States out by University of Florida Press.
0: Great. Nice to be here.
1: So, your book spans the first 50 years of network Spanish-language television, starting with the debut of Univision in San Antonio in 1961, through the birth of the second Spanish-language network, Telemundo, in 1986, and you go all the way up until 2012. And you make the argument that I'd like to explore here that the history of Spanish language television changes the concept of how U.S. television developed. I know you mentioned how it doesn't follow the traditional model that we associate with a successful television network. So can you explain what that means?
0: It clearly did not follow the model of what most people think of was American television um, in that it brought into the United States, a heavy international influence. A key element in the history of Spanish language television was a media institution in Mexico, Televisa, which actually um, was larger than any of the uh, existing American television institutions we think of, CBS, ABC, NBC, NBC. And, um, as a result of that was very much positioned to start a television network in the United States. Um, part of my, my argument is, um, is that, um, south of the American border, everything, uh, is blank and no one has imagined that there is television power in, um, a country like like Mexico. In fact, because of um, traditions, because of laws, because of politics in Mexico, um, this media behemoth, Televisa, did emerge. And with that, again, brought internationalization from of television from a very, very early stage. But I think kind of more germane to your question um, is um, Uh, How I came into it and I certainly was taught that that the history of American television revolved was centered on uh, NBC CBS ABC and um, Everything in American television followed from the, the creation of those those networks But once you open your thinking and understand that it's not Fortress America, that there actually were television institutions um, that rivaled those networks, and the fact that the United States had a free media system that enabled um, an enterprise like Televisa uh, to come into the United States and form a network, you soon realize there were not three, but but actually four original networks that the pioneers of American television were not limited to William Paley and David Sarnoff and, um, Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite, that there were, um, the Ascargas, there was Rene Anselmo, um, people like Emilio Nicolás and Danny Villanueva, um, uh, Jerry parencio uh, long list of people who w- were essential to the shape of american television today and the kind of, the, sort of the pivot point of of what I'm saying is were um, audience ratings and um, h- indicators of which TV institution was which dating from largely the early to mid-2000s. And during that period, it was clear that Univision was substantially um, the most single most popular television provider in the United States with Telemundo not far behind. And um, in television, I've been around television my entire life, um, there's two questions, two questions that um, perpetually and perennial are raised who's making money and who's number one and I was always taught to be attentive to the answers to those questions well Univision was number one and it led me to believe that wow I mean our number one television institution is a blank that that we don't know how it formed we don't know anything about it we're locked into this idea that I must say um I feel the uh, AEJMC, um, over the years, has largely been responsible for, which is this Fortress America idea. Anyway, what I try to do is open that up, and there um, it changes the concept. Once you, I think once you realize that Univision, for a long period... Um, before the mass media began to decline, but at, the, at the, 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 the really sort of the end of the big media period, it was Univision that was the big media institution. It, it does change your concept. You have to accept what the facts showed.
1: Yeah, that's incredible the amount of research that I know you did and I know in the introduction to the book you described that a lot of this had not been marked down before so you're going off of scant newspaper clippings and oral history interviews and trying to collect this before some of the people who were the pioneers pass away and then those memories are gone. So. It's also very telling, as you're just describing, that by the 2000s, Univision was equal to ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox in the numbers of stations and properties, and sometimes it surpassed all four of those in the Nielsen ratings, which might surprise a lot of our listeners.
0: Yeah, and and again, I think the the, the bottom line importance of television in history is, is it designates... Um, the single most used of all of the mass media no no newspaper, no magazine, really no radio entity ever surpassed the largest television provider in attracting the largest number of people. So to me that's always been why television is important. My whole training in television was audience um, that television is there to appeal to, an audience and to attract an audience and um, so uh, so television is important in that regard um if you carry that out further then then it seems like scholars should have interest in which of those television providers was in fact the very largest and um, it, it, during, during the, the 2000, which was really, to me, sort of the end, it was prior to the social media when the, the, the big media really began to, to decline. But at, the, at the, the, the brink of the social media period, when the big media were big, it was Univision um, actually exceeded those networks. And Telemundo um, was like the number six network. And um, again, if you read the the history of American television, those two institutions are erased. So it's not difficult to conclude that if we don't know the two biggest of the biggest media um, entities that we've got a big hole in our understanding.
1: I want to go through some of the reasons that Univision and Telemundo became so popular some of it is programming that we're going to get into in a second, but it's also technology. And I grew up in New York City in the 1990s, and I remember having a sort of a clunky television set. I didn't get cable television, and it had dials only for about a dozen stations on channels 2 to 13, which had the major networks. In New York, it was CBS2, NBC4, Fox5, ABC7, and so on. And I didn't know it then, but in reading your book, of course, It Jogged My Memory, you described that these were known as very high-frequency stations, VHF. And I recall there being another acronym on the dial that I didn't know what it stood for, Read uh UHF, which is for ultra high frequency. And you describe how because UHF channels initially could not be received on all TVs, a lot of the English language broadcasters avoided them. But then Spanish language broadcasters seized on these channels, 14 through 83. And it's not often acknowledged that UHF underpinned the development of television in the United States. So can you describe how the founders of Spanish language television grasped that importance of UHF to construct this fourth national TV network?
0: Right, and um, of course, the distinction that you just detailed does no longer exist in the digital age. That no longer e- exists, but sort of as a as a uh, interesting aside, you would not believe the difficulties I had with the editors and the peer reviewers in trying to explain the difference between VHF and UHF. But it essentially was this, um, as you noted. Uh, the original system of television uh, provided for those twelve um, 12 VHF channels, which were the, the strongest channels and the ones that all television receivers were built to receive. okay, a little bit after that, once it, was realized how big television was going to be they had to create more channels so they they established a different band called uhf that had about 70 channels they they initially were weaker um, but not that weak and um and had a big problem because the early tvs were not equipped to receive those first television Tell, uh, first to UHF channels the reason why um, uh, Spanish language television is significant from a technological point of view and it has a, a lot to do with the huge amount of money that came into the United States from Televisa to do this but um, it, it was recognized at an early stage that if You acquired enough UHF channels. You could create a fourth network in competition with ABC, CBS, and uh, NBC um, that there were abundant channels available. The, the, The thinking on the history of American television, there were only three networks because there were only enough channels for three networks. But in fact, that's a fallacy. UHF had created abundant channels, and a fourth network was possible, and in fact indeed was attempted. There was an early fourth network called the Dumont Network that was initially structured to be built on UHF. It it had some VHF stations in cities like New York, the big cities. But out in the hinterlands, um, it, it was a UHF sort of proposition, and um, that network failed. Well anyway, the Escargas from Mexico came in and immediately noted, noted that that they could they could build a network in the United States on this other band called UHF. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, the history of American television relates, that UHF was a failure, this was a, initially a big mistake, all UHF stations failed, it was a disaster down the, down the drain. But in fact, that's totally untrue. And Spanish language television shows what a success that idea of UHF was because it, it enabled Spanish language television to effectively go into every city.
1: So in addition to this technological advantage that they seized on, uh, there's a lot of programming successes. So I like to kind of go through the categories of programming that Spanish language television capitalized on. The first for me as a sports fan, I was looking through some of the sports offerings. And of course, we associate maybe Spanish language television most with soccer. And I know you mentioned Pele in your book and how they invested heavily in providing coverage of the World Cup. So what was the role of sports, not just soccer, maybe other sports, in developing an audience for Spanish-language television? Uh,
0: with regard to sports, so- soccer, football was was clearly a signature of Spanish-language television. The other sport that was uh, very popular, and I think Spanish-language television contributed to popularizing it among Latinos in the United States was boxing. But clearly the history of Spanish language television is intertwined with the um, broadcasting, the spread of soccer in the United States. The, I keep mentioning this name, Escarga. This was a Mexican broadcast dynasty. They were the founders and owners of Televisa. Um, Televisa was able to grow into really what what at the time, what at one time was the largest television enterprise in the world, largely because the Mexican government permitted them to have a monopoly. And there were a lot of politics that I get into behind that. But nevertheless, resources swelled in Televisa to the point where they were one of the leaders of... Um, international international soccer, they were intertwined with FIFA. And at an um, uh, early stage, they had agreements with FIFA to televise um, soccer into the United States. And a, a big push behind the technology that Televisa funded, which brought Spanish language television to the United States, was um, the Ascarga's interest in having the rights to the World Cup. In it, it, uh, greatly the result of Televisa that the World Cup was popularized, but Televisa was a pioneer in satellite communication. A lot of people don't realize that uh, that that there was major Mexican technology that contributed to the first commercial satellites. That I get into the uh, city of Monterey was a hub of technol technological development, but um, the, se, televisa drove satellite communication, which in turn drove the spread of the World Cup. And um, to, uh, to illustrate that, it was the Escargas Televisa that built as Teca Stadium in Mexico City, which was the largest stadium. That was designed as a soccer stadium that was built by the television interest in Mexico, which was the site of the 1968 uh, um, tragic Olympic games. But, um, but, but clearly, uh, Televisa, which was the founder of Univision, um, was immersed in that. They were a driver of international sports. And uh, soccer, not to deny other popular sports such as, as baseball and basketball, but soccer was head and shoulders above all of the others.
1: Then if we look at entertainment on Spanish language television, I'd like to get into one of the most famous programs there, Sabado Gigante. Uh, And the host of the show, Mario Kritzberger, was a former tailor whose family had moved to Chile to escape Nazi death camps during World War II. And he adopted the stage name Don Francisco to start Sabado Gigante in 1962 in Chile. And then in 1986, the program moved to Miami. So what can you tell us about Sabado Gigante and its role in
0: developing Smash language TV? Well, I could do a whole podcast on that. I remember um, I had first moved to, to Phoenix and to taking my job at ASU in about 1991, reading in the Arizona Republic a big feature article on how um, Sabato Ionte had been just named the, the most longest running and most popular television, um, program in the world. And, um, and I, on Saturday nights I would tune here in Phoenix It's kind of before the cable. I would tune to channel 33 here, um, to watch Univision and see that, that program. And then later there was another article just, straying in the arizona republic about the host to mario kruzberger known to gazillions as don francisco but um i said wow you know i would really like to meet that guy this he just seems so warm and so gracious and so humbling i'll bet he has got one heck of a story to tell well doing as a result of doing the work the book i had that opportunity it was one of the biggest moments of the whole research process going to miami and walking in to his office humble little office in the univision complex in miami he's wearing this this leather leather jacket he was he was older i mean he was this was um around 2010 2011 he was he was older Welcome me right in, was just the the kindest guy. I had my son. I had my son who was about 11 years old at the time. I took him to Miami because I, I wanted him to meet who I knew was going to be an immortal figure in the history of television, worldwide television. And he was just the nut. Kreutzberg, I mean, the whole thing turned around from a, a historical interview into this him just a conversation about my life and my son and it ended up with him taking my son and myself to the Univision commissary which is it's like a lunch room that um, uh, studios have where people can can get lunch at any time because they're recording at all hours and he took took my son and myself in there and treated us to lunch and I've got pictures there my church pictures but anyway. Um but back to how this fits in fits into history. Um that show uh was on the air for I th- I think a total of fifty-two years. It started in Chile, which was Kreutzberger's home. And um then in 1987 through um, some very interesting events that I get into, a, a big conflict in the history, the internal history of Spanish-language television, was American Spanish-language television going to concentrate on domestically produced, American-produced programs that it did itself, or was it going to rely on foreign-produced programs? Sabado Bionte actually was a foreign program, but Kreutzberger had relocated to Miami, and a key figure in the book, Joaquin Blaya, um got him to start this program um, on what was then a ramshackle Univision um, station in, in Miami, WLTV. And um, it was big. The show started slowly in the ratings, but almost immediately became the number one program number one um, top rated spanish language television program and it helped because it it was half foreign half domestic and it helped resolve this tension over what spanish language television was going to be but it went on to it, it went on to be iconic symbol, in my view, not just of the history of Spanish language television, but all television. It was on the air a a total of 51 years. It ceased, um, uh, it it went out in uh, 2013 um, after having a big 50th anniversary spectacular the previous year. but uh, at that time, it was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest-running, most-viewed program. There's a notation in there that Kreuzberger was the most-viewed television personality in the world, making him the most-viewed human being ever in human history. Um, so all of these things enthralled me. Um, what it did to the audience was... Um, uh, just uh, spellbinding on so many, so many points, so many uh, um, turning point um, matters. Um, it, it, it helped in, in part of the process that is another key internal matter in the history of Spanish language television, the binding together of different Latino nationalities. Not being Latino, I I was not really that versed in um, culturalization until I really got into the book and started hearing about it from people that were in the the thick of that, and dealing with the fact that there is no Hispanic population as the U.S. Census would have people believe, and a lot of people would have people believe. I was told again and again it was just pounded into me that the um, the Latino population is comprised of multiple diverse populations defined by their nationality. Well, obviously, this was a a challenge in American Spanish language television because it was comprised of immigrants um, and immigrant descendants from all the different all the different countries. How are you going to have one U.S. Latino audience? Sabado Iante was important in that because it helped bind those populations, whether you were Cuban, Mexican, Colombian-descended. Um, they all loved that show. They all loved uh, Krudzberger. And so it was very, very important development, um, in the history of Latino affairs in the United States. Um, I think it's probably good to point out another aspect of entertainment, and that was a driving force in the history of Spanish language television, the telenovela. Um, of, Of all the different things that came into play in the history of Spanish language television, I would have to say the... The rise and the dealings, the the um, all the affairs relating to the program genre telenovela was probably the most significant thing. This was a program that the Escargas in Televisa in Mexico City invented in 1952, and it was immediately popular among. Latinos. And by that I mean Latinos in every Spanish speaking country. The Scargas designed this program to appeal to a a, a, a non distinguished Spanish language population. They were they were produced in, in Mexico, but they were they did not identify Mexico. They used a universal form of Spanish. The whole idea was universal themes and um, just common things that would enable these novellas to be sold in every Spanish-language country and eventually in non-Spanish-language countries. This program was a key to the fall of communism. These programs were so popular in Eastern Europe, it helped it contributed to the to the fall of communism. I, I, I consulted in Eastern Europe, in Russia, and, I, and people would, would recall how the blast effect of these novellas from Mexico and some other countries, but especially Mexico, were important. But anyway, not to delve too deeply into the novella, but this was the source of the intrigue of all of the, or the source of the, this pot stirring and all of the intrigue that 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 the book entails. there was popularity, there was stardom, there was um, influence, and big, big, big money um, entailed in these telenovelas, some of the highest rated programs in American television history. Uh, we're were telenovelas. The telenovelas would enable Univision to become number one. And Televisa had a lock on those broadcasts. Uh, another
1: aspect, as we go from sports entertainment and then to news, Univision had been spending at one point twenty million million to produce its own news. But you write how in 1989, Telemundo began airing a Spanish-language newscast that was fed by CNN. And that low-cost news had helped them avert bankruptcy This eventually led to the hiring of the news anchors, Jorge Ramos and Maria Elena Salinas. So what was the role of news programming in the history of Univision? I think it also gets a little bit to what you were talking about before, whether that's going to be produced domestically or internationally. Uh, How does that all play into the history of these Spanish language uh, networks?
0: This was another interesting element of of the um, Mexican money and television technology and expertise moving into the United States. Because although Mexican um, interests, the Ascargas, were were directed toward entertainment programming, they did have an interest in news. And um, they um, were were in a situation... uh, in which news was in sideways with forces in the United States. Televisa had this blowtorch newscast called 24 Hours, um, hosted by what for a long time was the most familiar figure in Mexico, Jacobo Zabladowski. And um, that was Among all the telenovelas was broadcast from Mexico. That broadcast offended many, many people because um, Zabludowski, as was Televisa, was a puppet of the Mexican government, which was not always aligned with the U.S. government. Among other things, the Mexican government at that period was a friend of Fidel Castro. In Miami, um, that is a hotbed, of, of ant, ant, was a hotbed of anti-Castro resistance, so you can imagine um, the effect in Miami when 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 all the, pro, the pro-Cuba news slanted news reporting from Zablodowski was shown on the news every night in Miami on Univ. But that's just that's just one part of it. Um, back to your question about um, what was happening to, to, to Telemundo uh, with their news, what you're alluding to wasn't was an attempt to uh, by Telemundo to counter Univision. Telemundo Univision began in 1961, and Telemundo began exactly 25 years later in 1986. It's first they both. Uh, The Telemundo and what became the modern news Univision um, both premiered on New Year's Day, 1987. So there's somewhat easy marking points. But anyway, Telemundo began in 1987 to counter Univision. One of the things they tried to do was form a news division. And um, so they had a lot of momentum in 1987 in doing that. Eventually, it became very expensive for them for Telemundo to the point that it contributed to um, economic chaos and calamity at Telemundo through the 1990s. That I that I get into it was a very very weak um, very weak network in news, but at at the same time in that period in the late 1980s that that you're talking about with your question. Um, a very interesting thing was going on at Univision, and maybe you'd like me to get into that because it's another landmark in Spanish language television. Okay, in 19, 1986, um, the what today is known as Univision was known as the Spanish language, or the, excuse me, the Spanish International Network. That was the um, forerunner of, of Univision. And it was going through a, um, a difficult period with the FCC. In fact, a landmark, the FCC, um, because of the Ascargas foreign ownership, put it out of business. It was in violation of FCC rules requiring American ownership. So the FCC ordered that, um, the Ascargas get out of American television. New owners came in. Well, as a result of that, um, at, at the end of the SIN tenure in 1986, as SIN was going out, Televisa attempted to take over the SIN news operation, because although it had to end Um, licensed broadcasting, it still could broadcast news. There's no licensing on news. So what happened uh, was an all-out commandeering of what was then the SIN National News Division um, in 1986. And um, when this happened, when Tel sent... Actually, sent Zablodowski to Miami to become the new American news anchor. He was going to anchor the American news as well as the Mexican news on a channel called Echo. But he was going to be in Miami. Um, and again, I, I alluded to the resistance to that to, to that dimension to Zablodowski in Miami because there was this conflict over who liked and disliked castro anyway huge protest one of the biggest protests ever launched over something going on in american television miami was incensed by this that televisa moving in there the 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 anger spread all over the country to all of the univision markets finally The people in the Univision newsroom, what was then the SIN newsroom, led by um, a a figure who I got to know very well and came to love, Gustavo Godoy, um, who who was the news director, who actually was the pioneer of Spanish language network news. But um, he was fired. He confronted television, he was fired. That triggered the biggest news mutiny in the history of American journalism, totally erased in journalism history. This was a major development in September, October 1986, this mutiny of, um, of Univision news personnel. An important part of that mutiny was, that, that brings it to the modern day, Jorge Ramos, was one of the people involved. He um was had just joined the SIN news operation and chose to remain. I mean he was a young kid. I I talked to Jorge really a nice guy went over this in detail. It's a vivid memory to him, probably more vivid than his confrontation with Donald Trump. But nevertheless, um in, in 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 his admitted naivete, decided to not join the mutineers and stay at Univision. The result of that was him getting the anchor seat as the Univision main newscaster, which he today continues to hold. What is it? Almost forty years later, but um, that happened, and the result of that was Televisa pulled out of Miami in a hurry. There was no; they lost all of these journalists that had been they that had formed under Godoy at sin and to lead in to, to circle back around to your question about what happened to Telemundo Telemundo began something like three months later again I noted that its debut was in New Year's Day 1987 that was about two months three months after this mutiny in Miami this news mutiny the founder of telemundo one of the founders another key figure carlos barba persuaded all of those mutineers to come to telemundo telemundo got a quick start because all of the people formerly known as what was known as the univision news dream team suddenly appeared on telemundo and this was a big big thorn for for Televisa and Univision because television got huge ratings by having these um, Univision mutineers back on the air. Jose Diaz-Balart, who today is a well-known NBC anchor, um, um, and he does both English and Spanish language television, an esteemed, esteemed figure, really respected Jose. He's, he's still active. He was one of the mutineers. He was one of the people that originally went from Univision to Telemundo in this conflagration over news values in Miami and um, stayed at Telemundo. NBC acquired Telemundo later, and and, uh, Diaz-Balart became big on NBC News because of that. But lots of implications and... um, just hearing, just listening to the people who were involved in this recite just the fear and the uncertainty, and they're concerned about the caving in of American news value. I mean, we're doing news in the United States. Are we going to stick up for freedom freedom to broadcast, or are we going to have to comply with this Mexican propagandist, Zablodowski, who's going to come in here and through the miracle of technology broadcast? Mexican propaganda on U.S. airways—big to me, a big turning point event that helped define news values. You know, I would say bigger than any of the single events, including the McCarthy matter that is uh, associated with Edward R. Murrow. I mean, this, this was really, in terms of the number of people and the clear-cut issues involved, was more definitive. And a shame that it has kind of gone, I guess,
1: unnoticed in journalism history until your book.
0: Yeah, Um, I I would say so,
1: yes. You mentioned before this concept in your book about Spanish language having the power to influence and shape the lives of its viewers and how the United States had never had this cohesive quote-unquote Hispanic population. Latinos were identifying with different countries of origin and Now, through these networks, tens of millions of U.S. Latinos re-identified as different individuals, I'd like to kind of take that point and look forward. So now that you've charted the history of Univision Telemundo, but you were also referring a little bit to the social media age before, we know that we are now in an era where a lot of people are cutting the cord, so to speak, relying on streaming services, Obviously, Telemundo and Univision have adapted in some ways to that, but what do you see as the future there? There's now maybe also a lot of immigrants who have acclimated to the United States, and maybe they don't view themselves as much as coming from a specific country. They view themselves as Americans, and maybe they don't have that attachment to some of this kind of Spanish-language programming, or do they? As, so I'd like to kind of get your viewpoint on what is the future of these.
0: Yes, um, sort of as another book note here. Um, I was content to having this be a history ending in 2012, effectively the 50th anniversary of Univision. But um, there was, I would say, energetic interest by peer reviewers. Um, I have been involved in peer review my entire life, but I've never had a peer review experience quite like this, where I had um, all Latino peer reviewers who were very much involved in the the subject and, um, you know, bless their hearts. I, (laughs) I had voluminous reviews, things matters I had to, to take care of. And all along it was admitted that I, I was non-Latino and these folks were the true authorities. And so we had a good working relationship, but but these peer reviewers and the editors as well were really into making sure things were done. So um, I was content to have this book ended 2012. They wanted to uh, look at the future. They wanted it carried out beyond that into where we are where we are today. So I spent considerable time on doing a new conclusion that incorporated all their all their thoughts. My bottom line impression from that process of having to revise the conclusion to look toward the future was was basically two things that happily the peer reviewers eventually agreed on it after a lot of a lot of discussion. Uh, Number one was starting around the time I ended the book, the mass media themselves were also ending. That um, uh, you can no longer really say there is mass communication because social media especially has changed that paradigm. Anybody can communicate to anybody. And um, if you look at the ratings of Spanish-language television. They they peaked out around the early 2010s, around 2013. 2013, Univision was um, substantially the number one network. That's where I wanted to end it, on that note of Spanish language television being number one. But because of the a conclusion, I had to carry that forward. What happened after 2013 was a drop-off in Univision's ratings, in part because Telemundo had been infused with cash from NBC and the Universal Comcast buyouts. And, And Telemundo was coming up eating at Univision's audience. But nevertheless the total ratings were declining in Spanish language television. And that coincided with an ongoing decline in the ratings of English language television to the point where, when I'm writing this in 2019, 2020, even um, the net, the biggest network is, is getting like a one share. So it's difficult to, genuinely say mass communication exists. If the biggest provider of media, television, the biggest provider of the biggest provider has 1% of the audience, I mean, you've got to make a a, a good case that mass communication is still out there. Okay. And then part of that as well, social media um, rising and just completely changing the paradigm of news. Today, 75 to 80% of the people get their news from social media. They don't get it from mass, mass communication sources anymore. So that had to be considered. Looking forward, you're going to see Spanish-language television, as will be English-language television, as a niche in a bigger television environment. What's, what will happen is... Uh, what's happened already in English language TV, where there will be a still be a signature network like Univision, like Telemundo, but what it will really become is an internet streaming service. It will become a a, a symbol, a name on an internet streaming service. And in fact, only just three or four weeks ago, Univision announced a big deal with Televisa to form exactly that. It, univision telemundo streaming service so that's what's going to happen you're not going to be seeing the big univision stations anymore the big univision presence okay the other matter that you um, nicely introduced what's the future of the spanish language use of the spanish language uh, in the united states and. and you know, again, I'm an okay Spanish speaker, but clearly Spanish is not my native language, my fluent language. So I, I, you know, I had to be careful in getting this across. But in researching the status of the Spanish language in the United States during this revision of the conclusion period, it was inescapable that, 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 that in the future there will be a decline in people's reliance on the Spanish language um, in the United States. And the reason is um, simply because of the population trends, the demographic trends. The Latino population um, notably skews toward youth, toward young young people. Um, as of the 2010 census, I don't know what the 2020 is going to show, but as of 2010, something like two-thirds of the Lat- identified Hispanic, officially his- identified Hispanic population was under the age of 35, two-thirds. Okay, those those young people are coming up in the United States. They're living in the United States, coming up through the American school system, they're making American friends, and they're relying on English. And um, it's, from what I have been told, going to be difficult to preserve fluent Spanish language people when you've got this influx of young people born and raised in the United States who are learning, learning English. That's not to say that Spanish will disappear. The research on this just emphatically shows that among Latinos, there is a, an impulse to preserve the Spanish language in the United States. But the evidence shows um, that, that young youth, the young people are acclimating, they're growing into the speaking of English. English. And um, so what you kind of have, what, what, what where the book kind of is is on this um, this precipice with, with regard to Spanish. Most of the book, almost all of the book con- considers what um, uh, authors, authorities in this area regard as first and second generation Latinos. Those were the, the folks that, came to the United States immediately after World War II, and then another influx in, in the 1970s and 80s period. First generation, second generation. The history of Spanish language television is, is about those, those people. Where the book ends is with this influx of young people, the so-called third generation that the first and second generations have now bred young people who are growing up in the United States. They do not recall a mother country. They're born and bred, raised in the United States. The question being, are they going to continue to cherish Spanish the way their parents and grandparents did? And the answer appears to be No to the point where um, I'm getting input from the networks, Univision and Telemundo, that the thing that, as of the ending of the book, they most feared was the decline of the Spanish language. This is, was so interesting to me because all through the history, the 50 years, the, the leaders told me that they will never retreat from the spanish language they would never go to a mixed english language spanish language concept and yet as the book ended that was beginning beginning to happen here in phoenix um univision has um its main channel and sub channels that are all english language channels so the promoters of Spanish language television are seeing this and this this is their big challenge in the future. Two challenges, the survival of broadcast television and the survival of the Spanish language.
1: And I guess we'll see how that continues to play out. Um, you know, it's an unanswered question that will Take time, right? It's yeah. a historians look, and they say usually we need at least twenty years or a generation to kind of judge how this is going to play out. Um, well, as we wrap up here, we've spent a lot of time talking about the kind of role that your book plays in filling a gap in journalism history that we've often focused a lot on broadcast journalism in a traditional sense of the major networks and the Paley's and the Murrow's and those sorts of folks. I know we've done episodes on Hearst and Pulitzer and those names, but we always end the podcast with one question that I'd like to pose to you now. Why do you think journalism history matters? It matters because...
0: It is a glimpse at a very important building block of America and the world in the latter 20th century. This was a key period, the, the, the post-World War II period, um, a key per- turning point period in human affairs when um, landmark change in human affairs um, from social movements to the atomic bomb to the landing of people on the moon changed human affairs. The history of journalism is important because it was a building block of that period. It is, it it now to me is history. It is, journalism is now in the rearview mirror. But that doesn't diminish its importance historically and in fact arguably makes it more important. Because to understand this iridescent post-World War II period, you have to understand the media. You have to understand that this was also the era of mass communication, that we may not be in that era anymore, but it did once exist. And to understand our history, you have to understand the mass media era, the era of journalism. And Spanish language television, I'm saying, is, is um, essential to that. It is a core of
1: that. It's sort of stunning to hear the point made that we may be past the era of mass communication, although you make it very convincingly, and it's maybe nothing new to our psyche because we've heard a lot about cord cutting and fragmentation of media. However, it's still just to hear you as a mass communication scholar say it. um, It seems like just a wow moment that we're going to look back and say, this is charting the Decline of that shared human experience that certainly television was such a, a big part of, right? Of everybody watching the last episode of MASH together, or Seinfeld, or a, remembering a Walter Cronkite newscast, and being able to go to the water cooler the next day at work, everybody had seen the same thing and could relate to it. And you're talking about how with Univision, Telemundo, it had that kind of effect on all these diverse Hispanic communities in the United States. To think that that could actually be something of the past um, is just sort of a a stunning remark.
0: Well, I would just to quickly play off this, and I know we've probably gone over our time, but I have always sort of seen AEJMC as a group of scholars, esteemed, accomplished, um, well-meaning people that tend to march in step. The, the scholarly process demands that, of course. But um, um, and I've been going to AJMC convention since 1987, and I've always had this Im- impression that it is a lot of people thinking the same way. I kind of in the in the counter to that. I, I I've never really totally of all the loving embrace. Between me and AEJMC, I've, I've never really felt on the same wavelength of AEJMC. But to hear you say that it's hard to Im- imagine what I just said, um, I would wager that every single person in AEJMC knows what I am saying. They just don't want to admit it. And, you know, so that's, that's my little little um, political thing, but but nevertheless, it is true. Um, and um, I'm glad that you have recognized that i have have said that because it is the it is the the case of what exists today.
1: And I think it's just the nature of a lot of the research that we do. For those listeners who don't know much about AEJMC, again, the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication that holds an annual conference with all these different divisions, including the history division. So, of course, a lot of the journalism scholars are focused on the past when journalism was at its height. And so you're thinking about the glory days of newspapers and radio and television. A lot of the scholars are former reporters who still want to believe. Even that nostalgia and that journalism can have that sort of widespread impact. Um, and that's just the way that we were trained in our graduate programs and the, what we try to then teach our students, because we don't want to believe that this is failing and that, you know, these majors that we're teaching students in are no longer maybe as relevant as they once were. Uh, but uh, it's, yeah, it, it's definitely an important concept that you're bringing to the table. Um, and I just, yeah, I found that uh, just very provocative. Um, So once again, the book is Univision, Telemundo, and the Rise of Spanish Language Television in the United States. A runner-up for the AJMC History Division Book Award, the author is Craig Allen. Craig, thank you again so much for joining us today on the Journalism History Podcast.
0: And thank you, Nick. I had a good time. Thanks again.
1: Thanks for tuning in. And additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor & Francis. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast You can also follow us on Twitter, at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hirschan, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night, and good luck.